You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. What's interesting is, I shared this last week, according to all the data that I could muster, and I'm always hesitant with data, um, but there's a right way, I think, to, or a good way to try and get the best kind of data you can receive. When you look at Greater Williamsburg, which would be Upper York, uh, James City County, Williamsburg City proper, about 155,000 people, you discover that according to the various bureaus, uh, census and religious study groups and the way denominations do um, church attendance studies and that sort of thing, along with the national study that was done in religion, 57% of over 155,000 people in our city and surrounding counties marked unclaimed for their religious affiliation, 57%. Now, that's a very different number from the only 20% for the Commonwealth of Virginia. And what does that tell us? Well, it's just data, but data always has a story to tell. In 2010, when I first started doing this kind of work here, um, the number has done nothing but increase. It hasn't decreased. In 2010, I believe it was 44%. That number continues to grow. That could mean a lot of different things. That's on track with the way Christianity is moving in North America in these United States. It's the way that happened before there needed to be a second great awakening. We buy into the false narratives of Christian nation and realize that it's one thing to call yourselves a Christian and another thing to actually be Christian. The A makes all the difference. Um, So there's that. But in 1964, there were people, as we have said, who believed that God was at work in this city and that they wanted to join Him there. And 2,000 years before that, Jesus stood up in His own home city, His own hometown, did the practice He was used to doing and grabbed the scroll from the Hebrew Bible called Isaiah. And He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim uh, that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the year of the Lord's favor has come. And then he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant. All the eyes are on him. And then look at what he says. He says, the scripture you've just heard, read it with me, has been fulfilled this very day. That's significant. See, what Jesus is doing when He says that the year of the Lord's favor has come, which is a reference to Jubilee, where God levels the playing field on all things socially, economically, um, in terms of all aspects of society. What what Jesus is doing is He's speaking about a new humanity. And I need you to go go with me on this because it's going to sound a little bit up here for a minute, but it's not. He's talking about that there's a new humanity now. And this new humanity that's going to be made up of these people are going to create a new society in the midst of Rome's society, in the midst of Jerusalem's society, in Israel's society, that there's a new humanity that's going to form a new society, and it's going to perform, it's going to form a new society because they're going to be allegiant to a new king who is coming and who has come and establishing a new kingdom. 
which we know that's what Jesus claimed to do. And what's significant about the story is, yeah, all this other stuff at the top is beautiful and great, but it's the fact that he says, and I want you all to know that today, that time has come. And that was 2,000 years ago. So that means for 2,000 years, the church is supposed to be operating under the premise, under the idea, under the vision that God has formed us not to be someplace we gather on a Sunday, but something so big that we'd be willing to leverage $378,000 of our personal money to see the gospel take root, just like they did 60 and 64. That it has to be so big that it's got to be more than chairs and more than music and more than preaching. That it's got to be a koinonia, a common life, a fellowship. And oh, by the way, that it can't be an affinity group either. You know what affinity group is, right? Where we gather ourselves around people who look like us, talk like us, vote like us, act like us. It can't be that. Matter of fact, Jesus is actually very specific to bring good news to the poor. It's got to be a community who's willing to give good news, who's willing to set the captives free and the blind can see and liberate the oppressed, set them free. There has to be action. Now, here's what's happened. I don't know. If you've been here for eight years, you know that we, we try to do this text fairly. One of the unfair ways to preach this text is to make it spiritual. And I've heard many preachers spiritualize this text because they don't know what to do with the literal captives and the literal blind and the literal uh, oppressed um, and the literal poor, so they take it and they spiritualize the text. And I would suggest that it's both and. You can spiritualize it, but you got to make sure you take it literally as it means, very literally, because that's actually what Jesus is doing in the text. Now, forgive me because I know I do this. I, I realize here lately that I do this a lot more than I ought to because um, it just sounds real pre presumptuous. Um, but the English language sometimes fails us in translation. So when you see the word poor, there are two words that Jesus could have used in his culture that would have meant poor. One word is panes. Say panes. Panes would be the working poor. That's what that category of people meant. So when you said, hey, I just, I just spent time with the panes, you're saying I spent time with the people who work and have, 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 have jobs, and, but they live on the margins of the side. They're not landowners, but they are the working poor. That's the panes. But then there's another word that would be poor, that would be called poor, called tokos. Say tokos. Tokos means literally those made poor. It means bent down and pressed down. It means the abject poor. It means that they aren't good enough for whatever reasons in their social stratosphere to be working poor. They are the abject poor. See, back in Jesus' day, your identity was rooted in your geography, in your education, in your, in your economics, in your last name, in your ethnicity, in all of these things. And if for whatever reason, your ethnicity and your geography and your last name and your education and your economic status did not fit the bill, did not fit the system for which society was arranged, to uphold, then you were, in Jesus' day, took us, made poor. You want to venture which guess uh, Jesus chooses here in this language? Took us. See, when Jesus says, I've come to give good news to those who are made poor, 
Number one, Jesus was a good sociologist, and he understood systems. Boy, I wish Christians could understand systems. But number two, he understood that of all the people in his society that needed some good news, it was going to be the people who were pressed out. Now, let's say I'm wrong, because it's very possible. What do we see in Jesus' ministry? We see him doing just that, right? Like he's going to the tokas all the time. The lepers, the blind are literally being able to see. The imprisoned. The thing is, is captives will be released and imprisoned. We assume jail cells, but eh, not what he means. The literal colonies of lepers who were imprisoned and set aside from every bit of society were freed. We see this playing itself out. And Jesus is saying that today, this has become a reality. And see, that was Barton W. Stone's problem with his cool hair. This cool hair was definitely not a problem. What was a problem for Barton W. Stone at Cane Ridge Revival is his theology didn't align with what he saw the Spirit doing. He didn't have categories for that. And I wonder sometimes if that's our struggle as a church. See, if the church is going to be faithful, she has to believe that she is, above all things, a new kind of human being that forms a new kind of society where all the discourses of the other societies do not have the same weight here in terms of its hurt toward others. All the other systems that form other societies that separate and divide, the one thing that the society of God should do is reconcile, should restore, should liberate, should set free. And what's interesting about this text is Jesus isn't just writing anything. He's actually quoting what scroll? What scrolls are reading from? Isaiah. He actually rolls up, he unrolls it, right? And, and he gets to, to Isaiah 61. That's not how they would have done it. Like, you know, Jesus isn't like, give me Isaiah chapter 61. He, and he wouldn't have talked like that. Um, and this is what it says. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the... He has sent me to what? Comfort the brokenhearted, not qualify the brokenhearted, right? But comfort them and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the year of the Lord's favor has come. Now, what's interesting is Jesus redacts Isaiah and he stops here. You notice that he doesn't mention the whole God's anger against the enemies, which would really make most of us happy, right? Let's be honest. Like, where's the anger, man? Like, where's the war? Where's the warrior God? Where's he at? Jesus stops there. And then he drops the mic and walks off stage. Like, that's how the text reads. But it goes on. And if you're a Jew, if you're a Jewish person, then you know that this is a messianic text. This is a text that speaks of a hope that is to come. Because Isaiah was walking around preaching this stuff, and this stuff didn't become a reality. And then Jesus reads it and says, but today this is happening. They know what this means. That's why the Bible says they look with him intently. And then if you read the rest of the text, they want to throw him off a cliff. Seriously, it's in there. Um, 
Because everybody wants the poor and the broken heart and the captive and blind to see until they do. Right? Like then they then they mess stuff up. And so, I mean, we, we have a narrative here. But it goes on to say that these people here, the they, that he will give them a crown of what? Beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of what? Festive praise instead of what? In their justice. Say their justice. See, their justice. They're the they, the they. Their justice. They will be like what? Great oaks that the Lord has planted for His own glory. Great oaks. I asked Shirley Brooks early in the first gathering, what's the kind of a weak tree? And she said a willow tree. I think willow trees are pretty, but apparently they're weak. So you may not know this. Um, A while ago, a couple, three years ago, I can't remember when, I was in some sort of public discourse and somebody publicly called me a pansy. Now I've been called lots of names. But there's like somebody publicly just like labeled me a pansy. And I was, you know... Pansy, right? Like, how many of you have ever heard calling somebody a pansy? Some of you are like, I called you that. I'm the one who called you that. So, like, I just didn't tell you. Um, and so, so I was called a pansy, and, and it was cool. Like, I was like, okay, because I was called a pansy because I believe in this nonviolent Jesus. And, you know, to, to not believe in violence is to be a pansy. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be a pansy. Um, I like flowers a lot. I would rather be a tulip. Um, uh, but, but because I like tulips, except they, they slouch. They have bad posture. But I'm developing bad posture too. So it makes sense. It makes sense that I'm a tulip. But instead, I was called a, a pansy. So, so I'm a pansy. And, and Dave Faith, my coworker, he thought it would be cool to, to give me a clip out as to what pansies are. And so he clipped out pansies, um, like an article on pansies, not like literal pansies. And he put them on my desk. He put the clip on my desk. And I read the clip. And you know what I discovered about pansies? They are the most resilient flower of all the flowers. And I was like, I'm a pansy. Like, that's awesome. Like, that's great. And that's what God wants. He wants a people of pansies, right? Like, he wants a bunch of pansies. He wants great oaks. He wants people who will live their lives in such a way, and they welcome a people in such a way that God does something so big that they're not weeping willow trees, but that they're great oaks in society. That they're strong and they're deep-rooted. And that when the winds blow and the rains come and the storms come, they don't bow and they don't break. See, 1964, that's what this church was supposed to become and is supposed to become. And is becoming, I hope. It's to be a community of great oaks in a city planted here in Williamsburg. You could have ended up in any other place that you were planted here. To be a community of great oaks, of people who stand strong and deep for what is right and what is just. Where the poor and the brokenhearted and, and, the, and the, the captive and the blind are set free and comforted and can see. That's who a church is supposed to become. Not be known by their praise music or their, their building structures or that sort of thing, but be known by the news they announce and the kind of trees that they are in the field of society. What's interesting about our anniversary Sunday is it also marks my anniversary as a pastor here. Like I came to this church in 2010, month of October. And so the anniversary is doubly special for me because it marks the most important thing, which is the anniversary of the church. And then it marks the day that I was given the grace of God to join you in what God began in 1964. 
And this church has always wanted to be an oak. And you may not know this, but before I came, this church was fighting itself in a decline and and it was asking hard questions of itself, which most churches don't do when they start declining. They start knee-jerking instead of asking questions. Start knee-jerking towards all types of approaches. And And this church did something that an oak would do. The church asked itself the question, if this church were to cease to exist, would the city notice its absence? And for a while, for a season, this church began to explore that question together. And you know what the people called Williamsburg Christian Church answered to that question? No. We don't believe that we would. And so this church began to dig deeper roots and began to do extraordinary things, risky things, bold things, non-traditional things. This church didn't put lipstick on a pig and try to make what it had pretty and make John wear skinny jeans and a faux hawk. You should see that, by the way. <laughs> John's like, don't, don't imagine that. He wouldn't look good in a faux hawk. This church didn't start trying to do like, you know, Eric Clapton's Layla, but then change the word to Jesus. You know, like some churches do that, like, Jesus, dun, 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 like, got me on my knees. People do that. Like, that's what churches do. It takes, like, this church didn't do any of that. Like, it didn't do, instead, what this church decided to do was to say, okay, then, then where do we go? Where is Jesus found? Well, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. So are we proclaiming good news to the tokas? I've come to set, comfort the brokenhearted. So are we going into the broken places where broken hearts are found? Are we, are we captive? Are, are, I've come to release the captives. Are we going to places where people are oppressed and held captive? And this church began to move out into that place. And you know what God began to do? Well, raise your hand if you've come here within the last eight years. Raise your hand one more time. And what ends up happening, see, is did you know that when the city of Williamsburg needs something in regards to maybe foster children or maybe there's a parent who's living through poverty and they're about to go through some sort of surgery, do you know who they'll call to keep that kid? This church. My good friend who's a pastor in this town, a very faithful and good man with a good congregation, encountered a man from Nigeria who needed a place to stay because he was coming to William and Mary for law school and he had nowhere to go and he could not find anyone to keep him. So you know who he called in hopes that they would keep him? This church. And I told you about this guy that I don't know from Nigeria that he needed a place to stay for nine months and seven families came to me right after the service and said, we'll keep him. That's an oak. But every year when we get together at the anniversary, we have to recommit as to what kind of tree we want to be, what kind of fruit we want to bear, what kind of roots we want to have, where we want to dig in. And we got to decide a year again and again and again and again whether or not we want to be the light in the darkness of our city and of our country or whether we want to contribute to the darkness. Now, so... The historic triangle is often called the birthplace of the nation. Many of you, uh, do you know who George Whitfield is? Raise your hand if you know who George Whitfield is. He was, okay. 
He was uh, the great preacher of the Great Awakening. Went around all of the, the, the colonies and began to preach the gospel. And the Spirit was birthing new churches and new movements throughout the country. Did you know he only preached one time in the historic triangle? One time. Only one time did he preach at Bruton Parish. You can read the sermon online. If I were to read it, it would make you angry. Because it was that deep, that good, that provocative. Now, this is legend. I've looked it up and I can't find the, the sources, but it's a legend that is told because it's built upon a truth. And the truth that it's built upon is this. George Whitfield did not preach in the historic triangle beyond one time. And when asked why he didn't preach in the historic triangle during the Great Awakening, the birthplace of the country that he was a part of bringing about renewal, why, George, are you not preaching here but just once? George Whitfield is reported as saying this. The Holy Spirit told me that revival will not happen here because too much blood has been spilled on the ground. 57%. Commonwealth is 20% of religiously unaffiliated. 57% in the South. Too much blood spilled on this ground. We call that revolution. God calls it something else. Whitfield knew it. One time he preached. When you look at the history, did you know that the Great Awakening happened all around the historic triangle but never took root here? New congregations didn't birth up through the Great Awakening in this city. Slave congregations were formed. Did you know that? Slaves formed their congregations here. No new ones birthed by the white colonials. Didn't happen here. Now, I am of the opinion, to be entirely wrong, that in God's divine economy, what would happen to a nation if the land from which it was birthed found renewal, found revival? repented of its injustices rather than glorifying them. What would happen if the people of God who are supposed to be a new society of a new kingdom bearing witness to a new humanity and a new reality would rise above the political fray and all the isms and bring good news to the tokas? and comfort the brokenhearted, what would happen? I believe that it's possible that if the people of God came to clean up the blood that was spilled on the ground, rather than visiting it and glorifying it, maybe the Spirit would give new life. I've just always wondered that. But in my wondering... What I still believe is that the church should be a light in dark places rather than contributing to the darkness. And we, Williamsburg Christian Church, are going to be some kind of news to somebody. And we need to be good news. But here's the thing about good news. It has to be specific news. See, it can't be generic good news. 
it can't be give it to Jesus kind of good news. And it's got to look more than just we send you our thoughts and prayers, good news. It's got to be good news in the form of advocacy, in the form of comfort, in the form of action. And the responsibility that every single member of this church has is to decide which news we're going to proclaim. Are we going to proclaim Fox News? CNN News, MSNBC News, ESPN News? Are we going to proclaim gospel news? I'm a man, I'm a human, I'm a pastor. And I want to invite you just for about two minutes to rise above the political fray, just for a minute, rise above politics. In the name of all that is good and holy, rise above politics just for a few minutes. I've been contacted this week by sisters in Christ, in our church, and even beyond, who through the events of what's going on this week in D.C., and all the arguments, all the discussions that have witnessed and heard the water cooler conversations that have witnessed the comment threads on social media, that have heard it on the news and even heard it in their own homes, and have relived their own trauma of sexual assault and sexual abuse because of what they continue to hear in public discourse. And I've been called and I even had one young lady literally fall into my arms weeping because all of this has drug up and dragged out old stories of not being believed, of having people doubt, and of being objectified and politicized. See, participating in the political side of that conversation, rather than just simply embracing a victimized, hurting person, is the opposite of comforting the brokenhearted. But we have the hardest time rising above politics to see the humanity of the person standing right in front of us. We don't realize that the things we say publicly, quietly, are heard by ears attached to bodies that may have been exploited and abused and then realize by that word that they are not safe with you or with me. So to all my sisters, unapologetically and unwaveringly, I stand with you. And I am sorry that God's people have bought in to a narrative that is contrary to the gospel. We can do better. Because that's for which we're called. Jesus created a new society, a new humanity 
where beauty should be given in place of ashes, where joyous blessing should be given instead of mourning, where festive praise should arise out of the ashes of despair, where people are heard, where we're slow to speak, quick to listen, where we're unafraid to name injustices, to name the things that hurt lives and hearts and bodies, where we're oaks instead of weeping willows, where when every other tree of society has fallen down due to the pressures of religious or political or social discourse, where there are some trees standing saying, you can find shelter here. Trees that are planted by Christ Himself. We can be that church. It can be our story. It's got to be. Or we're just a club. And I don't want to be a part of the club. Some of you aren't cool enough to be in my club. I want to be part of a movement, of a family that exists for the good of the city in which we've been planted, that is unafraid to come every week and submit ourselves and all of our politics and all of our social concerns and all of our commitments, all of our ideas to the Lordship of Christ. Where we are a people who bring good news. Like bring it. We don't ask people to come get it. We're a people who actually go somewhere to bring it. We're a rare people who has been sent. See, so here's the thing about this text. The they in this text, go one more, uh, Bert, if you don't mind, one more slide. They will what? The ancient what? And repairing cities destroyed long ago, they will what? You know who the they is in this text? Raise your hand. We're the they. Because this is the text that Jesus says has been fulfilled. The Isaiah 61 is a theology of the church. This, if anybody says, what should the church be? Point them to Isaiah 61. Make sure they understand Luke 4 so that they see that this is what it was supposed to be. We can be a church that is about repairing and rebuilding and restoring, but we have to be willing to always let God deconstruct us and rebuild us as we go about rebuilding others.